0: So many people are going to tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to tell you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast.
1: Welcome back, Rebels. Hello. This has been a few of the busiest weeks we've had this year.
2: Yeah, I'm a bit under the weather. And. I guess this is the closest my voice
1: will ever be to being Toby Shinobi levels. (laughs) Yeah, it does sound pretty sexy at the moment. Thanks, mate. But I know it's definitely a bit of a struggle for you right now. Yeah, the past few weeks, we've done so many talks. It's been so exciting. We've done lots of universities and met some really, really cool people. And last night, we did a talk actually at Central St. Martins in London. It was really nice to share the stage with guests we'd actually had on previously. And it's kind of like we're growing a bit of a creative rebel community around us. Yeah, that was super cool. So we had uh, the ex-COO of Adidas
2: was there speaking, a really cool creative called Fred Deakin, um, and then previous guests we had Shani Mears and Amy Keene. Um, sharing their stories so yeah it was a it was super fun night didn't help my voice much because I get excited and I have to speak (laughs) and uh, yeah so I caned off my voice a little bit but um but yeah all good fun and I I really want to apologize actually for last week's intro uh it was super short and snappy because we're literally that backed up with doing all of this stuff but as well as client work that has kind of been holding us back back recently so um, yeah we we do try our absolute hardest but we run four businesses so sometimes it, it takes over Yes. So sorry for that. But hey, here we are today.
1: We've got a bit of time. So have an intro. Boom. One thing I really took away from this week's episode of John Mader was the fact that we're quite a good team. Oh, thanks, mate. Oh, lovely. Oh, we're having a, <laughs> a we're having a moment. Yeah, it was, an, it was quite heartwarming kind of listening back to the, the edit because it really made me realise how massively different we are, but how our skills completely complement each other. Yeah, Yumi and Yonah are uh, a magic
2: trio in that each other's strengths are the other people's weaknesses. Um, and I guess together we make one perfect person. Yeah, it's like that. It's a shame um, that we're, that we're <laughs> not just
1: one perfect person who can do it all. But I think no one is that perfect person. And a lot, right. we get a lot of questions, especially when we do talks about, because we come on as a duo when we do the talks, they're like, oh, well, what's it like to work as a team? Do I need someone else to start a business with? Should I get a second person? What do I look for in that second person? And... I think, I think most people are
2: scared to getting another person involved, aren't they? Yeah, often in my experience, most people are scared to get to get a second person on, um, and I, I kind of understand that because all of a sudden you're
1: splitting everything down the middle. Yeah, um, and I mean with us we split it into thirds. Yes, having someone else around definitely helps because chances are you're not amazing at everything and someone else can help you support in those skills. I think what you have to consider is you don't have to start a business with someone. You can just work for a bit and then take on employees. Yeah, working on your own is
2: super hard and we hear all the time about like the lonely life of a freelancer.
1: I was talking to one of my friends recently and they were talking about how they like to surround themselves with people who have skills that they don't because then it allows everyone to be able to kind of like help each other out. And I think it's really important to have that kind of network around you, whether it's your friends or people you don't know yet that you can go out and meet that you can support each other when it comes to things that you don't understand. So if you don't understand how to do finance or one person isn't a good designer, like maybe find a way to kind of swap skills and grow a bit of a network where you can exchange those to help each other out. It's interesting isn't it
2: so growing up my network were all musicians i was actually the only one who was like slightly different in yeah. that i was a painter but all of my friends made music and then when i'm in the situation of starting graffiti life need to need to build a website for it i i couldn't call on any of them yeah. because their skills are were strictly in music and none of them had an interest in graphic design and um web design and so had i had a more varied pool of of different talents then probably i would have been able to call on someone yeah. but that was obviously how our friendship and business partnership started was through i didn't yeah. know
1: anyone who could do that and then i met you and you could do that yeah so it's weird to think that yeah if you had that friend already we wouldn't be here now which mm. is crazy yeah growing up for me it was quite similar like i was the only one of my friends who was like arty and um, all my other friends did kind of non-creative subjects or they weren't really into kind of creative things and it wasn't until because even at uni as well when I was doing a creative course I didn't really hang out with the people on my course I would hang out with people who I was friends with like from halls and who were on other courses so again I was still the only one in a creative field And it wasn't until I moved to London and over the past few years, especially, that I've really started to grow a network around myself of other creatives. And that's just by going out there and meeting people and talking to people. But I think, yeah, when you start something, to find people who complement your skill set is really, really important. Because if you just have loads of people who can do all the same thing, that means the weakness is just going to get stronger and stronger. Whereas if you can find people to plug those kind of talent holes that you have in your business, I think that's really important. Yeah, I mean, you must remember that the most
2: powerful part of the Power Rangers was the Megazord. Yes. Yeah. And if they were all just left arms, it would have looked shit. Oh, great analogy. <laughs> yeah. So, so be more Power Ranger and, um, and, and work together, collaborate, man. It's powerful. Surround yourself by different ideas, new ideas. It's like us. We're always looking at, at younger, up and coming artists, new talent, because we can learn from
1: them everyone that we've taken on in our team has a real mixed range of talents and abilities and everyone benefits everyone else and together as a unit we're we're really strong
2: yeah so because I think normally when you think of collaboration you sort of think of collaborating with people who are really similar to you and the magic comes like that's what John kind of talks about is like the magic comes when you're when you're really open to other points of view mm-hmm. so yeah super super interesting episode I um, I was pretty nervous before we did this one
1: yeah because John's a very different person to you
2: yeah I don't know i I felt sort of really out of my depth and and reading through the book I did find it quite hard going because it's it's not my comfort zone it's not something that I'm like not I'm not all that interested in like yeah. I don't really care about um speaking machine um but it was really but it is really an interesting world to um to dive into seeing as so much of our world is is shaped by it yeah and I suppose if I was 10 years younger, and I was just starting my career, then it would almost be essential. Over the years, I suppose I have just relied on you and Yonah to yeah. take care of that side of things.
1: Yeah, I think the times that we're living in now, having that, even just a really basic understanding of what coding is and how the world's moving in terms of tech and, and the digital space, I think it's so important for what's gonna happen in the future because things are changing and we're gonna to have to evolve.
2: Yes, yeah, so this is a, a fascinating episode. We talk about art, we talk about creativity, uh, really, really interesting conversation. So we hope you enjoy this chat with John Maider. John Maeder is the chief experience officer of publicist Sapien, um, which is one of our clients actually. Uh, he's also an artist, designer, and former president of the Rhode Island School of Design. We got John on the podcast to talk about his new book, How to Speak Machine the book presents a framework for creatives to expand their knowledge in the digital world where perhaps they felt a little left behind like i do Um, (laughs) john argues that by understanding computational design classical creatives will be able to up their game
1: in this episode we talk about how to speak machine creativity and the myth of the starving artist
3: that myth is damaging and so i'm glad to meet Paris, like yourselves, or individuals who are able to fuse the two together, because you realize, no, 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 wait a second, I think I have to eat. Hi, John. Hello. Welcome to A and welcome to London. Thank you. I. I love how your gear is set up and you have the other gear on the ground like that, like cadavers or something.
0: (laughs) So uh, my first question to you, John, is who taught you how to speak human?
3: Definitely that would be my mother. My mother was, um, well, she still is. She's alive, luckily. She is uh, 84, maybe? And... um, she was born and raised in Hawaii, and she has this really warm spirit to her. Mm. And when my parents had a tofu business, um, I noticed that the customers would always come because she was just so fun to talk with.
0: Yeah, it's. I think being nice is such a good business tactic. Yeah.
3: Oh my gosh, my father used to get so upset, like, why are you talking to the customers? You know, start <laughs> working. and. I I am working. Yeah, I am working. And I think it wasn't my mother, the business would have folded easily.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were staying in uh, Morocco recently and there was one place we stayed and we toured around. And one place we stayed, we arrived there and the host seemed like there was this man and he was really miserable. And we were a bit like, why are the reviews for this place so good? Because this man's like really negative. Um, We needed to print off something and he wouldn't help us. He was just like, well, you're going to have to go and find somewhere to get this printed. And we're like, okay, that doesn't really seem like a, friendly response but sure Um, and then about half an hour later we'd kind of packed our stuff off and came back out and there's this woman there waiting for us who was just a ball of joy and she was just like the friendliest person and Uh um, we're like oh um oh we were speaking to your husband earlier um we need to go get something printed she's like oh well come and use our printer upstairs and was just like this lovely human being who just made things like it suddenly made my review go from like a four to a ten instantly I feel like being a nice person is a great way to go.
3: Yeah. yeah so she was the one who, because uh, my father was a craftsman, like, you know, make it the right way, super quiet, super earnest. Um, and uh, he taught me how to be a good machine. He worked really hard. Mm. So I think about that duality of the human and the machine kind of began there.
0: Yeah, and that's something that, that comes up throughout the book. Uh, Why was it important for you to write this book? Why do you think that people should learn to speak machine?
3: I think that nowadays we have, like you have your smartphone there. It's so useful with computers here. And we use these devices, but we don't really understand how they work. Mm. And when they do things we don't like, we're going to either hate them or be curious. And if we're curious, we might be able to change how they work for the better. So if you can speak machine, you have a fighting chance at changing the way things are right now.
0: Um, you talk about the three types of design, and obviously you've, you have a rich history within design. And for me, I saw design as one thing, as mm. creating a product, making a product look beautiful. But what, what are the three kinds of design that you've identified
3: when I was working in Silicon Valley, I noticed everyone loves design because of Apple or Airbnb or any other cool brand. And I realized that there are difficulties in understanding the word design because it has so many uses. So I broke it into three kinds of design. There is classical design, the design you're describing, the design that makes it feel unimaginably good from the physical world, like your. are Your cool sweater, neat hat, your glasses, like, whoa, those are nice items. And they're made out of physical materials. We can bend them with our hands, et cetera. Then there's design thinking, which is more of a business school approach to design, which is about getting people to collaborate. I'm sure you mentioned the large projects you do. How do you get everyone on the same page? We have to get consensus. Let's all sticky note, and let's cluster, and let's get to some kind of consensus. And then there is computational design, which involves all the design involved in not the case of the computer you're using, um, but the actual software that runs inside it. And not just what runs inside it, but what's attached to the cloud and every other computer out there. That's a weird kind of design. It is. So
0: what then is, what is computation?
3: Well, the... The reason why the book became what it is is it started off as a book about the three kinds of design. Yeah. And I remember, I like read it twice maybe, and people go, oh, okay, that's kind of interesting. But can you tell me what computation is again? Mm. And so it became a book about trying to answer that question of what is computation. And what is computation is it's everything happening in the nether world of the computer that you cannot see. It's a world that's invisible. It's a world that isn't what you see on the screen of your smartphones or laptops. It's a world that has no physical form, and it's a kind of world that tech startups understand fluently. They can see it as if it were real, and they can manipulate anything inside it. Um, You know, Minecraft. Yeah, Yeah. it was a wonderful builder world. Imagine if that world were doesn't didn't have to be just visible. It was invisible. And that kind of world, that can be made. That's the world of software. That's computation.
1: Wow. That's, uh, that's described the book in like, yeah. <laughs> like a
3: little nugget. That's great. Uh, which of those three do you think is the most important? Um, I think the most important depends upon where you stand. If you're in an empty room, I think you wouldn't mind classical design. You want a chair and a table. Yeah. That's, a good, that's a good time to love classical design. If you're in a large company trying to like get everyone on the same page. Someone wants to build a ship. Someone wants to build a car. Someone wants to build a jacket behind you. Okay, let's all get on the same page. Let's like ideate together. And you want design thinking to get to some common outcome. If you want to create a smartphone app that'll take on amazon.com, that's computational design. That's the world of tech startups. So it depends who you are. If you're someone who's trying to upend the future of the world, you're going to have to lean towards the tech side nowadays. Mm-hmm. So computational design will matter to you if that's what you want to do.
1: So as a lot of our listeners are creatives and like do a lot of things with their hands, how would you suggest oh, that they that in take a computational career?
3: Well, you know, this question of being a creative person is something that I've tried to unpack over the years. Because um, the way I describe it is, in early 2000, someone said to me, John, you're you're a creative, so don't worry about the money. And that was the fourth person that said that to me. And so I started to worry about the money. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, why shouldn't I be worried about it? And so I think creative exists as this word that is counter money. And I think that's a problem because to be creative – You need money to eat and, you know, stay warm. And then you get to be creative. So it's not like something separate, but somehow they're separate. So I think creative people who use their hands, the classical designers, they're disadvantaged because they can't access this other world of scale, of technology, of you'll never understand it. You know, why should I give you uh, money to fund your your dream or the stuff in the computer? You know, you don't have that training, so go and be creative. I don't think that's a good exchange. So I encourage every person who is a classical creative to up their game and understand what is this other computational creative thing. Why does someone start to learn something like that? Well, the problem is you have to learn how to write a program, which is terribly boring, I have to say. So, like, what? I've got to write code. That's the last thing I want to do. Finish that. Go back to classical creative. So, really, the attempt that I'm making in this, this book, How to Speak Machine, is, well, you don't have to be fluent in it to just understand that there's this invisible thing that people are leveraging, companies in general— You can be terribly concerned about it. You can also be artistically curious about it. And if you can tap into that, how will the world change? It's an invitation to do just that. Mm. And for
0: me coming from so I know Adam's obviously and we speak about it on the podcast all the time about how Adam is the, the tech brains of the two of us and if there's he, he worked out I mean I speak into this microphone it then gets broadcast on the internet to thousands of people I don't know how that happens Adam knows how that happens so I, I rely but not everyone right. has an Adam um, and so it was <laughs> get yourself an Adam though because oh gosh, they're they're super
3: useful that's a product
0: Yeah, <laughs> uh, very expensive <laughs> Adam um Um, But, but yeah, that was, that was my, um, my take up from, from reading the book was that for me, for all of these years, and Adam will, will well attest to this, is that I very much would just throw my hands up in the air and just say, this is not something that concerns me, your tech, you deal with it, I am pencil and paper. And this was my first after our 10 years of being a business together. This is my first time where I've actually taken the things that Adam would say to me that would be gobbledygook. And I've actually started to have a very basic understanding of, mm. of that. So thank you for that.
3: Oh, <laughs> gosh, there we go.
1: You're learning to speak Adam.
3: <laughs> 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 That's the first step. <laughs> yeah. Well,
0: it, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So it, it's been interesting and, um, I, I had resistance when we first, when we first were were sort of pitched to to talk to you because how to speak machine. I was like, well, that's not how to speak David. That's how to speak Adam, not interested at all. totally um, But then I thought, because I thought, well, I suppose I better do some research. So I did my research. And then through looking at your life and career, realizing that you've you've lived on both sides. You've lived the David life and the Adam and the Adam Life. Yes, I have. And so you've um you've studied typography, sculpture. So I I would say you probably very much identify mm. as a creative.
3: Yeah, I do. I, I have the classical piece, I have the computational piece, and I have the design thinking business piece. So I guess I just feel lucky that I've been able to live in those three design worlds. And it's helped me see what happens to the point of your partnership. Something really great happens when you can bring worlds together. But so often we don't do that. Mm. We like to stay in our, our sameness world.
0: Yeah, it's, it's very prevalent. And it seems I think with the Internet, it's almost happening more is that we find our, find our likeness and we, and we stick to it. Um, I mean, even in the book, you talk about the, um, the red and blue feed for, uh, I can't remember, is it Wall Street Journal? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I should explain what that means to the listeners. So that if the Wall Street Journal identifies that you are of a certain political leaning, those are the posts that it will present to you. And if you're the other side, then it will present those posts to you. And so most of us, because of algorithms, are living in a world of our own design, but that doesn't open us up. To the possibility of others.
3: And, and it's, no, it's no surprise, like looking at Adam's cool haircut, he's clearly a creative. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and looking at the fashion you're wearing, you probably influence how other people dress. So we don't know we, about we, that. We, we, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking to get a sweater like that now. It's a pleasure. <laughs> but um, when we get together, we borrow from each other. And so it's only natural that comfort comes from sameness. So if you're a red state person in the United States, you just get along so much better with the red state person's thinking. And if you're a blue state person, you get along with the other person. Same, I'm sure, here in in this country with the people who are pro-Brexit and people who are anti-Brexit. When you cross the quote-unquote line— you recognize it's people with different perspectives, and maybe you can't hear each other so well. Mm-hmm. But when you can speak their language a little bit, like, oh, maybe, you, maybe you're maybe you not such a bad person. Maybe I can listen to you a little bit. So how to speak machine, which I'm really happy, well, I'm, but you already loved Adam, clearly. But you were yeah. able to, like, lean into him and say, like, oh, that's what you're saying. Oh, I can, I can smell that. I can smell that. That's a start. He loved me before, but now he appreciates me. There we go. There we go. There we
1: go.
0: I wouldn't go that far. Um, yeah, that was the one when what you mentioned earlier about you're creative, so you shouldn't worry about money. Um, mm. I think it's 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 something that we hear a lot, and oh. and I think it's I think it's damaging. And I'm always saying to people, especially when I meet young artists, that in order to change the world. You need like you need commerce because you need to fund and uh, there's this very romantic notion of the the artist wha- whatever I use art really broadly that can mean whatever your passion is but um, the artist that or the starving artist and that by being paid for something somehow makes it less than and it's not something that I agree with. I don't know what your thoughts on that are.
3: Oh, well, that's the terrible fallacy taught you through movies, books, through art school too. Starve for your art. Mm. That's how you have mm. this elusive word, integrity. And if you have integrity, you're a good artist. When you think about it, I'm sure you've noticed in your own careers, when you meet the amazing artists you've heard about, maybe 99 times out of 100, they already were wealthy. Mm. They came from independent wealth. Yes. Uh, or they married into wealth, or they actually came from nowhere, but there's some important duke or whatever funding their work mm. to lift up their work in the art market, to sell it while it's high, and then they're gone suddenly. So that's a super cynical view, but I, I I noticed it while I was a contemporary artist, just just wondering like, oh wow, you know you're you already were wealthy. That's how you were able to make this work and you're not starving because you, you never starved before. Yeah. So that myth is damaging. And so I'm glad to meet pairs like yourselves or individuals who are able to fuse the two together because you realize, no, 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 wait a second. I think I have to eat <laughs> and it's okay to eat. It might be okay to eat a 15 pound dinner once in a while. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is that bad? I think I feel kind of happy. And you turn that into what you do hundred percent and there's something really interesting
1: like story I heard you tell about when you were a kid and you went to like a parents' evening at your school and your tutor or teacher was like you were really good at art and maths and then the next day you were with your dad in a shop and he was talking to one of his friends and he said that oh he was really good at maths but ignored the art thing like how did that kind of make you feel and has that kind of impacted you um,
3: I, you know I, I'm actually I'm actually glad that I remember that as a kid, because clearly I had an Im- impact on yeah. me, because I thought it was strange, but yeah, looking back, my parents had no education, you know they didn't they they were starving in that way as immigrants and trying to get stuff to happen so mm. um they were practical. they wanted me to be able to feed myself, so nothing at all wrong with it. um I do know that in later life. That I'm glad that I was able to be able to survive and then switch into art and design in a way where I was empowered to do so. because I think a lot of parents will like they obviously want what's best for you and they want
1: you to be safe and for you to have a safe life. They don't want you to go through the struggles that they've had, so i would rather you go down a a more of a a straightforward path, I suppose. Well,
0: and I suppose parents see art as very risky and not a good career option.
1: Yeah as opposed to maths. So what, like, what would your advice to parents be now who've got someone who's maybe good at both?
3: Oh, well, there are a lot of parents who are fine with their kids wanting to be artists. I've noticed that. Uh, some of those parents think that they're not going to become an artist, they're going to become an innovator, which is really good in our society today. Mm. In terms of people who can do both, I think that they are terribly advantaged and disadvantaged. Because they enter an education system where they're told to choose. Mm-hmm. Are you an artist or are you a scientist? And you have to choose one. Um, so it's hard for them because they don't, they don't know which, if they've chosen the right thing. Uh, but later in life, if they are not so averse to risk, they can always combine the two together. Yeah. And they're quite powerful together. I mean, your pair is an example of that. I'm sorry, but if you alone were trying to make it versus you together, it isn't just additive, it's multiplicative. You're running at exponential speed because you both are computationally thinking.
0: Very true. Um, I mean, on that point, it's obviously something that you're quite passionate about, given that you spoke to Congress about changing STEM into STEAM and A being the arts. So what, what drove you to do that?
3: Oh, well, I I think that problem exists here in the UK as well. But in the US, what was happening is STEM education was becoming the key to creating the next tech startup science people that the country needs to ignite the economy. So what I didn't realize until I ran on School of Design, an art school, how I would visit arts, art teachers and realize that their art classrooms were being like raised and taken away to be replaced by chemistry classrooms. And art education might have been, like, an hour a week broken down to, like, 10 minutes every two weeks. And I thought, wow, like, if we all become robots, just speak machine, what's going to happen to the human part? So advocating in the U.S. Congress for art to be in STEM to turn STEM into STEAM was a a logical passion to pursue and um, it was exciting because gradually the budget questions began to be asked maybe the arts are strategic to national security companies like Apple wouldn't have happened Mm. if the fusion wasn't a common thing
0: yeah there's a A quote in the book, and I'm just going to read from your book, as awkward as that may be for you. um, And uh, you said, listening to arts educators from all parts was what subsequently motivated me to head to Silicon Valley. I wanted to understand how companies like Apple and Airbnb managed to fully leverage the combined capabilities of Steam in their products and services. What did I find? That design-infused companies fully understood how art is the science of enjoying life. And thus, in order for their customers to enjoyably live with their products, they needed to involve artists in how their products were made. And I think that is, I mean, I I specifically took a bookmark of, of that page just because for our audience, it's knowing your worth as an artist. And I think that we mentioned how society looks down on the artist and how, I mean, growing up in the 1980s, every every loser boyfriend in a in a in a movie was gonna be he was gonna be an artist. That was your way of portraying oh, this this is a no hoper, this is one of society's mm. dropouts. And it's simply not the case and to to value your your artistic abilities over over so much because companies like the biggest companies in the world need it. And even if you don't eventually become an artist, the traits and skills that you will learn just by experimenting with art, are so transferable and valuable in your day-to-day life.
3: Well, you know, the phrase that I like that describes that capability is artists are excellent at the ability to productively fail, which is the most important role in a business context. Entrepreneurs don't just fail fast, they productively fail.
0: Productively fail. So, um, So they learn from their mistakes.
3: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, we've had a few productive failures (laughs) (laughs) along the way, haven't we? Well, that's how you learn, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And to to your point of whether it's happening in the UK, it definitely is. And we were recently part of a uh, campaign to actually try and raise awareness about this because the Mm. figures are in the UK, um, creative subjects have fallen by 35% since 2010. And that's even though the creative industries in this country are currently contributing more to the economy than they ever have before, over 100 billion in 2018. Mm. So I do not understand why our country is consistently cutting arts when creativity is our our biggest export. Mm. It's
1: scary, actually. How important is creativity in Silicon Valley?
3: Oh, well, it's it's especially important in the making of digital products that you want to enjoy. So that'd be... All products. Yeah. So it's a a vital ability.
0: And you've actually used art to help people to understand computers as well.
3: Yes, I spent a long time making installations to explain maybe not how to speak machine, but how to dance machine. So I had physical installations with people as different parts of a computer running around in Japan. And... um, in France, I had a show at the Cartier Foundation that was, I think, seven short movies I, I, I animated to depict the world inside the computer. So this book is like the, the third coming of my attempt to try to explain what's happening inside the thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, like, for, I suppose, finding the right method of, of how are you guys going to understand this?
3: Yeah, I know that everything I've tried before hasn't worked. So <laughs> let's try this one. Let's see if I productively <laughs> fail from this one.
0: Um, because I mean, you've you've been around computers ever since. It's it's fascinating to me that you were looking at a a black screen with a blinking green yes. cursor. Yeah. In when would that be? Nineteen eighty three. I seventies. Yeah. Yeah. And you were drawn to it, whereas yes. I suppose most people. I mean, computers weren't fun then, right?
3: They were repelled by it. How inhuman! <laughs> um, well, you know, I, part of it might have been because I was good at typing, because my mother was a secretary, and so a legal secretary, and she was so proud of her typing ability. Her fingers are very short, so I remember <laughs> so she like,
0: could go from the letters quicker.
3: I, I did don't know why she was so fast. <laughs> but she would say like, "Oh yeah, I can type like a hundred twenty words a minute." So I was always like, huh. So like one day, I'm going to beat mom. So I back then, you would learn typing in something called office automation. But anyways, um, I took typing one, typing two, and then by typing three, I like – I remember I I passed 120 words a minute. My teacher hugged me. It was a little bit bit awkward. Um, I went (laughs) back to the tofu store and I said to my mom, mom, I can type – 120 words just like you. And my mom started laughing and said, actually, I can only type 80 words a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so always trick your children or nephews or nieces, whatever. Yeah. Just, uh, you'll get them to excel. You are always competitive as a kid. Just about typing. Just <laughs> <to> typing. <laughs> it's
1: type <laughs> <hard laughs> Olympics. Amazing. There was something you said in a talk where you said you asked a few questions to the audience and one of them got the biggest response, and that was... Um, to build a justifiable case for creativity in our world. And so as that got the biggest results, what, what is that? Did you ever build that case?
3: Oh, well, um, you know, that was trying to see if I could get high school age youths interested in the future of art. And I, I underestimated their challenge of being recognized as creative people because they would be dismissed. In high school, you're the creative one, so you're the weird one. Yep. You're, the, you're mm-hmm. the loser one or something to your point of 80s movies and things like that. I think that most of my life has been about building that case, whether it's through STEM to STEAM or working in Silicon Valley and venture capital, proving that impact of design. And, and even now at Publicus Sapien, really kind of representing how important the experiential aspects of the technology are just as important as any other buttoned-up business case study.
0: Absolutely. I mean, for us with our business, we we always had at the core that, that handcrafted was really important to us. But then when we, for example, create um, an advertisement billboard <laughs> that then comes to life through AR, that is still handcrafted. Mm-hmm. And it's still a team spending a huge amount of yeah. time working collaboratively with us to To make a mural come to life, mm. um, and that's something that that we take great joy in. It's something that that gives our work this whole other dimension for people to enjoy. And I think it's yeah, it's so important.
3: Also, it's example of the two of you as entrepreneurs to be able to scale. Mm. Scaling is scaling is seen as something that artists usually can't do, but look at Olafur Eliasson or any sort of famous contemporary artist; they have the ability to scale. They can leverage capital to create jobs and to create profit to reinvest in your next project.
0: 100%. I don't think we could have done that had we not found the advertising industry though. Mm. I mean, perhaps we could have. I mean, maybe I'm, I'm selling us short, but it just seemed that as soon as we realized that we had a product that
1: advertisers were interested in, that was when we could kind of double down on that and and really expand. And that kind of came by chance as well because we had a big project for Microsoft a few years ago and we painted a mural because we were asked to by an advertising agency and a passerby took a photo, put on Reddit and it got like two million views in two days <laughs> and we were like, shit, there's, wow. there's there's value in this, like people actually care about it. As mm. think- No one takes a photo of a billboard. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Exactly, yeah. I think cool. we've gone, like society has this like push and pull method where it's like, you've gone so far one way where people are just so sick of seeing billboards, they almost become background noise. So to appreciate the handcraft and kind of coming back to that, mm. people, yeah, I think people appreciate the experience and the talent that's kind of gone into it. Oh. Um, so on that note, going from capitalism to talentism, can you explain that for me?
3: Um, I was at a World Economic Forum meeting where the founder, Klaus Schwab, said that that we're moving from capitalism to talentism. We're moving from just money and financial wealth to uh, human uh, intellectual wealth and how a company is only as good as it's the people who choose to work there. And I thought it was a really good shift to make. And I think that, like, every CEO is going to be better equipped for the future by realizing that they're only there standing at the top because everyone who's, like, holding the CEO from the bottom. Mm-hmm. So talentism is such a good idea.
0: One thing that I took away from the book, and obviously there's lots of things that I took away from the book, because that's <laughs> it's why okay. I ask you so many of these questions, but I suppose when it's when I first started reading it and you're talking about loops and things like that, I had in my head what kind of book it was going to be. But then as we move through it, you kind of weave your your life into it, which was really interesting. And um, one of the things I noticed in there that you sort of spoke about um, I suppose it's the, the power of networking because one of your mentors said to you that um making relationships is is just as important as making software. Because you were you said you'd rather go back to your room and just be coding. I'm gonna
3: go make my stuff. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about the importance of, of making relationships as well as just making the the, the craft the thing?
3: Well, you know, that kind of ties to when I I had a a solo exhibition next to another solo exhibition. Uh, the artist was someone who had just come back from the Venice Biennale, like, you know, the artist. And so I was like, wow, like I'm showing in my own show and his show. And it was kind of cool, you know? So of course I was jealous. I was like, wow, I'm never going to make it there. And uh, I remembered showing up and like setting up my show. Um, we were like right next to each other. And then I noticed he showed up with, like, an entourage of people. And he had this, like, Duke was his agent. And the Duke did all the press for him. The Duke, like, uh, took care of his studio and got all the materials for him. And, like, it set up all his exhibitions, set up the entire future. You know, he was on the board of this, board of that. And, wow, I was jealous. I was like, wow, like, I don't have an agent. I'm just like... You know, hustling all the time with myself. Where can I get a duke? Right? No, I can <laughs> working at the duke, right? So, um, but then, you know, six days pass by, you know, his work's amazing. So the show's open and we have this like after party. And I was like, oh, I want to talk to him. And I said, hey, let's, let's stay in touch. And I handed him my business card. And uh, I remember he took my business card, looked at it and said, business card, how slick of you. And then I thought at the very moment, I wasn't jealous of him anymore because I realized, wow, I mean, you're actually like a bird in a cage in that you probably can't survive on your own. And I'm surviving quite fine. And so I guess my point is that freedom may not feel like it's so easy, but it feels really good when you see what's the opposite of that what skills do you
1: reckon it you need to be able to survive on your own
3: the skills to survive on your own are all about realizing that you're not the only one <laughs> and you're expendable there are many people out there who can do similar things the question is will they remember when they're thinking huh i need that person are you top of mind you know there's this notion in the creative world of if you do it really well the world will find you Just focus on the work. But that's not going to happen unless you're top of mind. (laughs) So the kind of networking you need to do to remain top of mind is absolutely vital. And it means you have to lean in and like to meet people, like to talk to people. And once you realize that it can actually fuel the work you love to do, it's, 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 it's it's a good exchange. But this idea of the tormented artist in your studio with the door locked, you know, with like old French fries sitting on the table molding because you're so committed and you come out of the thing and like a week later someone discovers you, that's called a movie.
0: Very true. And that that stereotype, that can also um, fit for the programmer or the coder who sometimes gets, and I mean, this is me sort of paraphrasing your book, but who sometimes gets so lost in that magical world that I suppose the real world isn't enough for them.
3: Oh, that's a great framing. I think every maker knows that flow state where you're so in it and you can feel it all happening and you feel kind of awesome, amazing, and then you kind of like crash afterwards and then you, people look at you and like, "What well, what's wrong with you? <laughs> 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 now, I was in a state. Now, I think you were kind of slightly kind of disturbed. Uh, and you realize, oh, well, it felt good. But, hey, I'm back. I'm here. Let's talk. Uh, and also the other thing about making things is there's nothing better than hearing feedback. Because uh, if you're a, a maker and you're in the ego of making – You're like, yeah, right, you know, whatever you say doesn't matter. I'm standing for my artistic integrity. It's not bad to ask what people think. You don't have to change what you think. But if you don't have the courage to ask what people think, you're still hiding. Um, And that's how I think you break yourself out of your maker ego and begin to relate to the outside world. And I think you become a better artist in the process. I
0: would 100% agree with that. And we know people who won't, who won't listen to any criticism or, or not even criticism, but feedback, because they're so certain
3: that they are completely right. You know who I'm talking about, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I've done that myself in my past. I remember like, you know, like, I am so right. And then uh, the other side said, fine, we're gone. And I was like, oh, wait, oh, oh, wow, that happens. <laughs> so at some point you realize, oh, it's a market economy.
0: For sure. Yeah, the art makes no sense without the audience.
3: Absolutely. That's lovely. Yeah.
0: Why do you think to so many people tech is scary?
3: I think tech is scary because it's hard to understand. And I think that everyone didn't grow up feeling the call of that blinking cursor on the screen and thinking it'd be cool if I typed a few things in and something happened. And so it's kind of excluded so many people. Uh, add into that the whole nerd culture of like, that's so nerdy. You have a computer, you write programs. And on the flip side, the people who are in their Minecraft world of code, they're like, I don't really care about you, so I'm totally fine. Goodbye. So I think the world of people who make in this medium is actually quite small. And if you let them do what they're doing, you end up with things like Facebook. You end up with behavior in these companies that you wonder, how is that possible? Because it's made by people. Yeah. And so more people who don't feel or think that way, if they don't break through that and start making things, we're going to only have a one-sided view of the world. Think what would happen if photography was limited to just the scientists who built the chemistry. We wouldn't have this other world.
0: On that note, in the final chapter, you talk about um, representation and how important that is in tech. Why is representation important?
3: Representation is important. And also just listening to people different than yourself is important because, like you said, art doesn't exist without the audience. And if you only know one kind of response from an audience, which is your own viewpoint, you've limited your audience because you could alienate a bunch of them. You know, One example that really caught my attention, I guess like six years ago, was um you know the um emoji right on the i on the phones yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. The little animated things it was when i think I think it's when Apple began to have different skin color emoji, yeah, so I remember being annoyed because i was i i like just pressing one emoji, yes, you know it was uh it was a pale hand <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's an emoji and And later, you know, the emoji, you press the thing, it's like you have to choose. Like, why do you have to choose? But it wasn't until Slack, uh, a designer there, wrote a whole piece on Medium, actually, about how he was asked to make an illustration for one of the onboarding um, uh, graphics. And he used a dark colored skin emoji because he's African-American. And the first reaction was like, whoa, we don't see that usually. And then you like, well, wow, I wonder how it feels if you're not seeing that representation all the time. You just get used to it, and you kind of give up. But by doing so, by having mixed representation, suddenly it's like, oh, you mean I'm welcome here? So that's a good way to engage the world. So I think that as more of all of us ask questions about the products we make, the services we create, and how do we engage people who are di- uh, different than ourselves— We just become better uh, artists, better designers in the process.
0: And how has being a type O minority helped you?
3: Oh, being a type O minority, I I like to say that because it's like type O blood. I can hang out everywhere. I can hang out with pale males. I can hang out with women. (laughs) I can hang out with LGBTQ community. I can hang out with people with much darker skin color than myself because people aren't sure People aren't sure to be offended by me or not. So I'm like, (laughs) like, I guess I can hang around. Um, And in the process, I I love to connect people across those zones and just discover what I'm discovering each time is that there's humans everywhere and you have to listen to them. Like I spent time in Detroit with African-American business communities. And then I spent time in the Donald Trump country. Um, the, the South, uh, Appalachia, West Virginia, Kentucky. And each time I would visit these regions, I was like, wow, I thought one way based upon stereotypes. Mm-hmm. And now I'm there, I'm like, oh, I can see things better. By the way, racism is bad. Misogynism is bad. All these bad, bad things, we do not have to be tolerant of them. But if someone is actually not in that zone of the dark and they have a different opinion, it's okay to listen to them.
0: And with the way that AI and everything is is going, and yes. I know you're asked often about the, the robots taking over. With that, all of the robots that we're creating are mirrored by ourselves and by the input that we put into them. So then it should be important that it's representative of everyone.
3: Exactly. Otherwise, AI is just as dumb as we can be. Because when you think about it, the AI thing, people aren't sure what it means. But so in the book, I try to explain the simple fact that AI is not someone writing down like all this code to describe behavior. It's pouring in all the data of our past into a a kind of a smoothie blender to be able to build conclusions from the past. So If there are biases like um, people who are going to be sentenced to go to prison, if you look at the past history, the history will bias towards people who came from poorer neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So if you give AI this data, data, AI will look at the error code or zip code you came from and sentence you based upon that terrible past history. And so we can automate all the stuff in the past that we didn't do the right way if we let this keep going.
1: Yeah, which is terrifying. Yeah, How do you, like? what restraints are on there around that? Is ah. there like principles that things should go by? Like yeah. the famous like robot principles?
3: Right, well, I think the problem right now is that because it's hard to understand, it's like the, um, the Salem witch trials or it's something very abstract and made into a media circus of, oh, there's evil and we must stop it. So I will protect all of you from it. I'm the politician. And I'm going to put regulations around this. But the reality is that if you understand how to speak machine in a gl- glimpse of a world where nothing ever gets tired, it can span infinite space, it can be as living as we are, even if you shut down one leader of a tech company, has that shut down anything? The alien world still exists. So... The solution cannot be ignorance, which is the way the world is headed. The solution should be, huh, I think I can understand what they're saying. Huh, well, what if we did it this way instead? Uh, That's what I'm hoping for with this book. People will ask, I think I get what they're saying. It can be used negatively. It could be used positively. Think of like dynamite, right? Dynamite's bad, but the Nobel Peace Prize is good how is it that the Nobel Peace Prize name is actually the name of the person who invented dynamite? (laughs) (laughs) So how does that work? Um, But it says that every technology has unintended consequences. How you choose to use the benefits of that technology can either go towards the bad or towards the good, but you have to understand the technology.
0: So then with that understanding, should people be taking like a Hippocratic Oath Before making,
3: that's a great, that's a great stance for artists in the technology world to make, to make that a thing, make to make it a law. You know, that's an interesting thing because it's actually a promise. It's a human promise. Mm -hmm. How does the industry able? How does the industry learn that that's a better way to do business? So, in this example, as an artist, you immediately thought of. You feel it makes sense. I think if you're a company, that's not the first thing you think of.
0: What do you think they think of?
3: Oh, they think of how to expand the uh, user base and how to <laughs> increase profit, all the regular businessy stuff. But a lot of employees in big tech companies are actually asking for these kinds of Hippocratic Oaths, asking for this to shift to happen. So it's more likely to happen, though, by people who understand this stuff versus those who don't understand it and just want to burn it to the ground. Mm-hmm.
0: I suppose as, relatively speaking, we are in the infancy of all of this technology, would it be a fair comparison to say like cigarettes were in the 1950s, where even the the billboards were smoked these cigarettes to keep fit and healthy, and then as more information gradually disseminates into the population, we realise actually cigarettes are really bad for you. Um, do you think that... As we are starting to realise, so for example on YouTube, if you start with a slimming video, it's then going to show you an anorexia video, just because they they know that the the, the viewing times will reflect, like will keep you on their platform. Mm. Do you think as these things become more more public knowledge, that that responsibility will step up and things will start to change?
3: I think as these things become more obvious to people, we'll have people making better systems. So um, I think the problem with the smoking analogy, which is super sticky and easy to understand, is that I like when you said it's in our infancy. The reality is that, as I lay out in the book, one year in like regular human time and one year in the computational world is not the same. Mm-hmm. Ten years in human time, ten years of computation time, it's like it's already you're like 8,000 years old Um, After 10 years. So it's already happening. And so it's not going to go away. And different from smoking, uh, it's happened so quickly and so engulfing that there isn't an easy anti-smoking campaign. So I think the opportunity is for more folks who can understand, like, oh, this is how that works. The slimming, obesity. Well, let's just fix it. Let's find all these things that actually are bad, and let's fix them. Um, more people out there will emerge if they understand that they can fix it, versus they can get someone to sue someone, and that's not going to help anybody.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's that's kind <laughs> of yeah chasing its chasing its own tail if you go down that road, isn't it? One thing that yeah. I love is that um, your South by Southwest um, presentations that you do, you talk about just things that you like. You're like, oh, this oh, here's some yeah, creative that. stuff Thanks. that I that I'm really into. Um, is there anything at the moment that you're that you're particularly into that you could uh, share with our audience? What should we be checking out? Oh
3: wow! Sorry, to put you on know, the spot I, because I, I know you'll you have to think. I know you long. all have the have the edge on interestingness that, that I don't have anymore. <laughs> um, I I'm really interested in anti-pollution masks. All right. I'm really interested in how you see them everywhere now. Uh, like in regular geos, I'm not sure if you have seen any in London yet. Uh, you
1: get a, a few, very few, few. I think the pollution in central London is quite high, uh-huh. um, so a lot of cyclists wear them. You yeah. don't see people, okay, cyclists. Yes, yeah, so it's more cyclists than anyone else, and then you get kind of Asian tourists will often wear them.
3: Yeah, it's more about that trend of like in in dense urban areas, or with pollen in the air, wearing a mask is okay. And there's so many kinds of masks. I didn't know there were so many designs of masks. Some of them are quite beautiful. I mean, just getting used to it has been interesting for me. Um, do I wear a mask all the time? No. But I'm wondering in the future, will this be more common? Uh, I'm hoping that we'll stop polluting the earth, by the way. I'm not, I'm <laughs> yeah. not masks here. But I've just been noticing that. Uh, the other thing I've noticed is the rise of snack bars. How can there be so many snack bars on the planet? like a new snack bar every other yeah. day? I think that's
1: more of a... Um, as people are moving away from sugar and how there's a lot of taxes being put on sugar, there's a lot of companies now who are trying to come up with the alternative of whether people will have spent money on a Mars bar, for example. Uh. They're going to go and spend money on this healthier snack bar. So there's mm. a lot of... Because I go to a lot of like foodie things, and everyone you go to, you come away with a goodie bag full of all of these different products from all these different companies that are trying to be the new snack bar that... Mm everyone's going to consume going forward but um, I've not seen them really pick up well There's, they're free everywhere at the moment in terms of any event you go to but
0: I've, I suppose when you look at I don't suppose you do you know um, Tom Billiou. Mm. Um I, it's funny actually because I think you'd be perfect for his podcast. So mm. yeah, you should have a look at Impact Theory. I think you do. You'd be a great guest on there. Um, but he's a billionaire from the oh. <laughs> from uh, Quest Nutrition bars, yeah. where his products. Uh, oh, yeah. his product. Um, and he now has moved into sort of the wellness space. Um, right. What is this
3: about the bar people? They all end up there. They either make a lot of money and then yeah. they go this health thing, or. I don't know. Anyways, bars interest me. Um, not not bar bars, but like, you know, uh, uh, snack bars. I'm really interested in unisex fashion. Okay.
0: Um,
3: I like how the fashion is becoming much more like, or not even unisex. It's like, what is the, there, it's genderless fashion. Yeah. That I, I just appreciate all these new innovations that keep coming out because a younger generation is totally comfortable questioning everything that came before us. yeah. yeah. And because of the long tail, you can make it and you can sell it and you can, like, make enough to have dinner once in a while. Not bad.
0: I find it really interesting how the young generation now are, like, Y2K is the, is the thing and they're all wearing, I mean, certainly in the UK, I'm not sure what it's like in the States, but everything that I had in my wardrobe in the, like, late 90s, early 2000s is, like, what all of the cool kids are wearing now. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. it's I think it's really interesting because those would be the kids who've grown up with the internet, for the first, they're the first yeah. sort of growing into that internet age, and where all of our fashion that we were wearing is all documented online. So oh, it's something that they can. Okay. I think that's how it's happened: is that it's been picked that's up through, and it's just sort of this remix culture of of taking what was and making it new again. It's quite interesting.
3: I never thought about that. It's the fact that you we can now. We now have a time machine that's called the internet. Yeah. And we can look at those images quite carefully now. Not like, you know, seeing footage and it's gone. So it's like, let's put that in slow motion. Let's zoom up. Yeah. What are they wearing? Oh, interesting. Never thought about that. I would say that it's much harder for fashion designers today to have an edge because their advantage used to be having access to past collections and past information. That's interesting.
0: And things would drip down really slowly. Mm-hmm. And it would go from the catwalk to six months later appearing in in high street stores uh, a sort of watered down version. Now it's it's from yeah. the catwalk into the stores the next day.
3: Uh, so the age of people like Alexander McQueen are, are gone because that ability to reference the past was such a rare thing.
0: I just I think it's just new now. I mean, um, you look at people like Virgil Abloh, yeah, and oh, and I mean he's a good one. I mean. Just, just a genius. Right. Um, so I think there's, there's definitely an innovation um, that is of the same
3: ilk as, as McQueen Synthesizers, for sure. yeah, mm-hmm. but they have to so. synthesize fast now. I think
1: with the internet as well and with social media, it's like you don't need to be a huge fashion designer who's going to change the world. You just need to be someone who's going to inf- influence a small enough amount of people for you to sell to to make mm. a living from. Mm. So it's kind of like saturated it. you don't need. There's not going to be five big fashion designers. Well, there will be for mass market, but if you're part of a subculture, you're going to like this fashion that someone's designed because no one else will know what that is. And I think the world will go a lot more into that
0: Into tribes, it does seem to be happening that way, doesn't it? Of of you find your people, you follow on your Instagram feed the people that dress like you, and and you all self-reference each other. (laughs) Yeah, everyone creates their own bubbles. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) it's like I was saying to you recently. I I stumbled into the world of like modern ninjas, which I did not know was a thing, Mm. and it's this whole like really tech fashion, all blacks or like very dark greens and lots of straps and like face masks and samurai swords as well really? um, Whoa. but yeah there's this whole and it's a whole thing and then because when you find one person on Instagram and you see who they're following oh, you realize funny. there's actually thousands of people that are dressing this way yeah I've never seen someone like that on the street but I know that there's yeah. real and there's enough of them
1: for it to be a thing yeah, I didn't realize that was a thing but I can think of a photographer straight away who does a lot of that sounding kind of stuff so there must be a, yeah. a market for it yeah
0: it's crazy <laughs> I love that. I love that you can find something that interests you and you can build a whole community around it. It's great. Because well, because before, I mean, I suppose it was possible, but it just would take a long time. Yeah. But now people just go, oh, that's cool. Yeah, I think I'll be a part of that. It's great.
1: Yeah, I really like the thing you said where mutants have finally been accepted, meaning people with lots of slashes. Um, how do you kind of think the world will evolve into that? Because I think we're moving to a place where Lots of people are going to have many slashes, and it won't right. be the norm to have one thing anymore.
0: You mean slashes, as in the your, right, your career? And
3: I think that the idea of a what's it called? It's called a jagged jagged line career path versus yeah. a straight line career yeah. path or a squiggly career path. Squiggly
0: career, I'm hearing a lot.
3: I think that the younger generation is forced to do that because there is no lifetime employment anymore. Mm. Because there was that era where you joined the company and they would hang on to you for decades. And I think because there isn't that promise anymore, the outcome is that you're going to have to be living in that squiggly career, jagged line career world. And if you're going to do that, you're going to have to be multi-skilled because you have to be ready. And I guess I'm hopeful that larger companies will find ways to leverage talent like that and see that as a an advantage uh, in the kind of products they make because they're multi they're multi-skilled which is a good thing.
0: So knowing that we're moving into that type of a world, what would your advice be to someone who is young and just starting out?
3: I think my advice would be if you're lucky to have a trust fund, don't worry, it'll be fine. <laughs> if, you're, if you're not so lucky to have a trust fund or multi-generational wealth, then really understanding computation versus dismissing it is really important right now. And I apologize on behalf of the computer industry that that's important to be something you are good at or slightly aware of. Otherwise, you don't have these wonderful partnerships. You know, so I think that's one thing. The second thing is that to recognize that collaboration is the great joy, not the great annoying thing to have. And I think that collaboration is how everything is happening today across disciplines as well. So just be open to that, open to being dumb around smarter people who know more. It's a joy,
0: it's interesting you say that actually. I, I don't really suffer from imposter syndrome. But when I knew I was going to be interviewing you, I felt really out of my depth. And um, I had to reframe it for myself. So I, I thought, go into this and rather than being an amateur, you are curious. And so that's how I entered this interview and that's how I got rid of my... Uh... So it's interesting that you say that right at the end of the interview. You're
3: better dressed than me. You're better <laughs> looking than me. So I think everything is all said.
0: Well, that's heavily the, debatable. The, the world is all okay. <laughs> so I hate this, uh, this term of um, consuming content, but in preparation for this interview, I did consume a lot of your content. And the... The thing that struck me about you the most is how um, overwhelmingly positive about everything you are. You strike me as just optimistic and gratitude it seems to be like a, a big part of your character. How do you stay positive and grateful?
3: Oh. Well, um, I think the reason why I began to like get on social media and just blog all the time and share... I don't think it's really common in my age group, actually. I think maybe it was my way of managing through the challenges, and I call it kind of like public therapy in a way. So if I'm seeming positive or whatever, I'm trying to get over something, basically. (laughs) Um, And the simple way I get positive is if you just search for this essay, uh, John W. Gardner Personal Renewal, It's by someone who was the Health and Human Services Secretary to Lyndon B. Johnson, one of the presidents of the U.S. And it's a short essay about how there are two kinds of people. One kind of person is happy doing the same thing for the rest of their life. Thank you very much. I'm going to have my tea go away. And the other kind of person is always just curious and trying to figure stuff out. And he points out that that kind of person is choosing a more difficult life. But also a wonderful life, and so anytime I fall down like like maybe on some occasions every day I'm reading that essay over and over, sometimes it's roughly once a month. It always picks me up. no matter anyone that I know who's reached out to me, who's been felt has been falling really bad fell down really hard, I say, "Just read that essay six hours later. I feel so much better." <laughs> <laughs> That's my recommendation. It's on pbs.org, which is the BBC equivalent in the US. I keep getting worried that the US government's gonna remove all that good stuff, so check it out. (laughs) Screen
0: grab it while you can.
3: It's free. Yeah.
0: Um you mentioned falling over and I suppose this was one of the things that that spoke to your optimism was you talk in the book about when you actually fell over. Mm -hmm. Um and went when the doctor said you're really lucky. He said, oh, I am really lucky. I'm lucky. Just, uh, <laughs> I
3: my neck, you know, I wasn't hit by a car. Like this is so awesome, you know. It really helped me. Someone asked me why I wasn't more depressed, it's because it was such a great experience to have the loss of using one arm because I just took my body for granted. And after that, I was like, wow, my arm came back to help me. So I'm, I'm super happy.
0: What an amazing, amazing attitude to have. Well, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for uh, for your time. The book is called How to Speak Machine, and it's out on the 21st of November. And where can people find you online?
3: I'm just at John Mata on Twitter. That's where I am. Wonderful. Thank you, John. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. We're trying to help a lot of people with this show, so we need your help to grow the community
1: and spread our message. If you know someone who'd benefit from hearing what we talked about today, or they just need a little nudge in the right direction, pass this podcast on to them. If you want to hear more,
0: then subscribe to us on iTunes. And if we helped you with anything, we'll really love you forever if you can leave us an iTunes review. It makes a huge difference. See ya.